You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. How are you? Big weekend for Bellator. Yeah, they big enough that we're even going to talk about it. We're going to spend j- just about the whole damn show talking. Wait, do not turn off the co-main event podcast. <laughs> come back, come back. We promise we'll talk about some other stuff, too. We're going to talk about some other stuff, too, but we did have Bellator 170 this past weekend, culminating in uh, the Clash of the Titans between Chael Sonnen and Tito Ortiz. Uh, So we're going to spend a good portion of this show talking about that, talking about some of the other stuff that's happening, looking ahead to next Saturday's UFC on Fox 23. But first, Ben, I know everyone at home is wondering, how did the big hockey showdown go between your ragtag band of misfits and the team that you described on Twitter as the team from the local bar that takes this way too seriously or you, takes it very seriously? Do you want to guess which local bar? Um, I saw some uh, people wondering if maybe it was the Silver Slipper. Bingo. Is that the one? The Silver Slipper. Because that seems like a bar that would have a hockey team that would take their low-level City League hockey seriously. And by low level, you mean the lowest level. We are the lowest, we are the novice level in this league. So it's the lowest point you can get. Now, I can't confirm this, but I've heard that this team actually videotapes the games and then goes to the Silver Slipper to watch them and kind of break down film So they, they do film study. Yeah. After the games. All of this is my way of saying they were much better than us and they beat us two to nothing. But, but, I do feel it. It's necessary to mention that the first goal they scored was when uh, one of our players was down, um, basically because she fell down and hurt herself. But she was down. All our attention was focused on her. And then they just took the puck and went ahead and scored a goal when all of our defense was paying attention to our injured player. I see. So a lack of focus then from your team. That's one way to look at it. And a lack of humanity from the Silver Slipper. That's another way. God, we're not going to get a Silver Slipper sponsorship anytime soon here. Well, come on, man. We've got that music. ship has sailed. We've got music again this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. That's the number seven and Z in the word beats. You know how people do on the internet. You Three know. rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, now that he defeated the jackal or the hyena or whatever... Will we remember Tito Ortiz as the lion with the big giant mane in the hot smothering weather in the jungle in Africa who finished his career on that mountaintop because he got sick of it and decided to show everyone who the fucking king of the jungle is? Woo! And in round number two, an internal email from Scott Coker to Bellator staff. Subject line, R.E. Chael Sonnen, the buyer's remorse? And in round number three, the women's bantamweight division moves on without Ronda Rousey on Saturday at UFC on Fox 23. Will any damn buddy watch? All that plus just saying stuff, are you fucking kidding me? And Sir Nigel Longstock's going to be in here doing a little Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, 
Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our old friend, the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes, Did you see that knockout? What a flying knee from Semtex Daily. Suddenly the thought of a Bellator event headlined by a Daily versus Rory McDonald fight has never seemed so intriguing. So I'm putting the question to you. Throw on your Scott Coker caps and give me your uh, first fight for the Red King inside the Bellator cage. Do you give him MVP, Koroshkov, Daily? throw him out the old underhanded softball pitch and give him cost check, immediate title shot at 170 or 185? Possibilities seem endless. So discourse this, discourse this shit, fellas. Hold up. Do we just refer to Josh Koscheck as the underhanded softball pitch? I believe we did. Wow. Cheeseburger Walrus is cold, man. He's not, trying, not here to make friends. Ice cold. Which I guess should be expected of any sort of walrus. Uh, you know what? Go, seeing Paul Daly go out there and knock somebody out with just an absolute decapitator of a jumping knee, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember why Paul Daly used to be somebody we got excited about. But then I also have to wonder, if you're going to try to keep him around and have some fun Paul Daly style, do you have to keep him away from anybody who might take him down? Yeah, and I would I would say that that is a is the proper that is the proper uh inclination. I would also wonder if you're going to pay the big money to bring Rory McDonald in here, uh do you want to give him someone like Paul Daly who at least in theory might knock him out despite the fact that Rory McDonald responded to Paul Daly's call out by posting the YouTube video of Zach Galifianakis laughing from I believe the movie Bad Bosses. I, you could tell me anything was in the movie Bad Bosses, and I'd have no idea. I don't even know if that's a real movie. It just okay. seems right. Uh, if you're going to bring Rory McDonald in, you don't want him to get knocked out right away, which I'm not saying that that would happen, but I'm, but Paul Daly, as he just showed this past weekend, uh, he can still do it. He can still do the damn thing, as Brennan Ward found out. So uh, I'm going to come out and say underhanded softball pitch and maybe a Josh Koscheck-type individual for Rory McDonald in his first fight out in Bellator. Well, I guess the question is, if you're Bellator, is having Rory McDonald there making his Bellator debut enough, or do you need to pile on some additional candy in see, with the addition of, like, Paul Daly? That's the flip side of the if you're going to pay him all this money equation, I think, is that if you're going to pay him all this money and he's got to come in there and do some big stuff for you in a main event then you want it to be a big main event. You don't want it to just be him crushing some can, do you? Like, you want to find, you know, one of the bigger fights you can make for him. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I guess I guess there's a lot of questions that could be asked here. Is Does Roy McDonald's Bellator debut have to be a main event? I mean, if you put him in the main event, then I think he needs to fight someone that people have heard of before. If he's on the undercard of, an, of another one of these Bellator kind of tentpole uh, senior circuit uh, just for fun matches and you want to make Rory McDonald the co-main event, I think it would be okay uh, if he if he crushes a can on the first time out, but I don't think that could be the number one selling point of a Bellator event. So, th yeah, a lot of questions up in the air right now about what Rory McDonald will do uh, in Bellator. Uh, I was kind of surprised that they were, well, maybe not surprised, but, it, you know, this past week when I wrote about, when I talked to Chael Sonnen and wrote a feature about him, just looking up the original Bellator press release from when they signed him and all of the different possibilities that they were throwing out there for Chael Sonnen 
uh, like they were just going to deploy him in every single weight class they possibly could. And mentioning Rory McDonald at middleweight as a possible uh, opponent for Chael Sonnen, which makes you feel like, I guess it's the it's the correct inclination if you're Bellator and that if you're going to bring these guys in, you just got to use them almost every single way you possibly can, regardless of weight class, matchup, what what have you. God, I want no part of that. Chael Sonnen versus Rory McDonald middle. You know, well, give me, not now. Yeah, it seemed me, a, like everything they were saying about Chael Sonnen seemed a lot cooler last weekend than it does <laughs> now. That's for damn sure. The other I, guy they said they were going to have him fight was Fedor. See, but that's the thing. I am still just as interested in seeing him fight Fedor as I ever was. All so, right. Well, I mean, that's a discussion for later for uh, for Chael Sonnen, what, what Bellator, what his future is with Bellator. Uh, anything else you wanted to say here about Rory McDonald coming or about the Paul Daly knockout like against uh, – uh, Bellator wild man Brennan Ward. Are we to the point with Paul Daly where we feel like all is forgiven? Uh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about for him... Uh, the thing that got him exiled from the UFC? Yeah, that thing. Punching Josh Koscheck after, after the, the bell? After the bell. That was almost seven years ago at this point. And he has still expressed like the minimum amount of remorse for it. True enough. True enough. I don't do, know. Do you I'm just feel like willing to let bygones be bygones? Time has healed point. that wound for you is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. And in, in fact, I would have, I'm looking at Paul Daly's uh, sure dog page right now. I would have told you that I thought, wait, do you know this? How old is Paul Daly? 32. Oh, 33. You were very close. See, I would have said much older than that. I would have said like 36 or something. I was about ready to lump Paul Daly in with the rest of the old timers over there at Bellator, but it turns out still a relatively young man for at least another year or two. Especially among the Bellator ranks. That's right. When he's a hot young prospect over there. Next question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery, who writes, Who was clamoring for Rampage versus King Mo 2? And do you guys even think Rampage can make 265 by then? Oh, ouch. Come on, Josh Montgomery. That's just throwing a little shade at the Bellator Cruiserweight champion, Rampage <laughs> Jackson. Uh, the other point, though, I think is well made. Uh, Rampage versus King Mo 2, Ben. Apparently, it's in the it's in the canon. We're ready to fire this thing off. I from that one, I expect, as Jim Ross would say, a lot of excitement prior to the bell. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's the right way to put it. But at the same time, man, what I noticed this past weekend when they when they hauled those two guys out for like a uh, a face off with each other near the ramp. Like by the, not, not even inside the cage. Like we're going to do this face off, like in the aisle on the way to the cage. Uh, I noticed that it, it, at this point, it doesn't even seem like King Mo and Rampage Jackson are that believably mad at each other. They both <laughs> were out there just kind of like, huh, yeah, okay, we're going to fight. Let's, we'll have a, some kind of nominal disagreement and then we'll settle it with fisticuffs. Yeah. I just, I do feel like there's got to be better stuff you could have both those guys doing. I'm not sure I know exactly what it is, um, but I don't know. Can't you throw Rampage into that just all over the map uh, sweepstakes of could Rampage fight Chael Sonnen? Could Rampage fight Fedor? Come on. Let's have some fun over here. No, right. I agree with you. I was like, and before they announced this fight a couple of weeks ago, I found myself wondering, well, you know, where was Rampage? So he, he went through this big contract boondoggle with the UFC and, and uh, Bo or uh, Bellator and, and finally got remanded back to Bellator and, and, you know, has fought there a couple times, but it seemed like we hadn't heard anything from the guy in a while. I was wondering where he was. And it turns out he's just training hard to go up there and fight King Mo at heavyweight is what we're going to do. I guess. I mean, whatever. I don't King Mo's most recent heavyweight appearance did not work out for him. No, no, it did not. Which I expected Rampage to make more hay over, frankly. Maybe and, there's still time. 
Maybe that's what we're figuring here. I got all the time in the world. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, so Francis Ngannou is scheduled to uh, play punchy face with Andre Arlovsky next Saturday in Denver, Colorado. Ngannou has been wrecking his opponents, which in my opinion has helped him surpass Derek Lewis as the most promising heavyweight prospect. Both these men are terrifying and exciting to watch. How do you see the cr- career trajectory of these two top prospects in 2017? I assume by uh, top prospects, he means Lewis. And Nganu, not necessarily Andre Arlovsky. That's how I read it. Yeah. You know what? It was interesting. Um, I think it was uh, Patrick Wyman on Twitter was posting. He posted a, a GIF of one of Nganu's first fights, maybe even his very first fight, which, you know, it was not that long ago. Like he has not, I think it was like 2013 or something. He was, not, he has not been doing MMA that long. And it was awful. Like just his technique was absolutely terrible. Uh, the punches he was throwing, just wide, wild, swinging punches. And to see him go from that to what we've seen in the UFC the last couple outings in just a few years, that really gives me more cause to be excited about him in the prospect sense. Like, how good could he get? How much growth could we see out of him? Yeah, as he only started fighting professionally in November of 2013, so just a shade more than three years in the uh, professional MMA career of Francis Ngannou. Uh, and undefeated now in the UFC through five fights, right? Or four fights. And this fight against Arlovsky will be fight number five in the octagon, which for a heavyweight, you might as well be 15 and up in the <laughs> yeah. UFC. Well, yeah, and most recently showing off that he's got a little bit of a ground game if he has to show that. Uh, you know, we've seen the power from him, obviously. Put him up against a guy like Arlovsky, it seems like you can really easily, man- you know, it's heavyweight, so... Anybody can do absolutely fucking anything at any time. But in my crystal ball, I see him landing a kind of seemingly innocuous looking punch and Andre Olofsky falling down on this one. Yeah. Uh, and this will be Francis Ngannou's first real fight again. I don't know. Do you want to consider Andre Olofsky top flight heavyweight competition at this point? I mean, it's, it is the heavyweight division. I don't what know that we, we have a choice but to include Andre Arlovsky. What were we saying in the, the Toby Keith sense about BJ Penn maybe a couple weeks ago that he's not as good as he once was? but He's, he's as good, good once as he ever was. Yeah, yeah see, Andre, Toby Keith I feel like Andre Arlovsky kind of falls into that zone because I, we, we wrote him off too soon uh, a couple years ago. That I, I think he proved that with uh, his, his kind of late comeback. But then, you know, we also saw some of the, the limitations of how, where that comeback could go. In brief spurts, Andre Olowski's still a dangerous, dangerous man, um, but also can still be knocked out. Yeah, and, you know, if you're going to say anything about the prospect status of Francis Ngano at this point, it's that he hasn't necessarily fought guys that we could uh, lump in with top-flight heavyweight competition, uh, and that includes 1980s Miami private detective Curtis Blades, uh, among others. But if you want, if you're asking us to compare and contrast Ngannou with Derek Lewis and what kind of prospects they both can be at this point, I think you got to give the nod to Lewis just because he's fought a, you know, a slightly higher level of opponent inside the UFC. Okay, fair enough. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Wayne in North Idaho, our neighbor to the west. He writes, greetings, fellow denizens of the icy tundra that is the inland northwest. Can we discuss fighter pay for a moment? I read the recent fighter payouts from Friday night's Bellator event. There's dudes on there still making $1,500 and $1,500. 
the UFC seems to get a lot of flack in regards to their fighter pay, and while I do understand that they are the industry leader and it would be only fair to serve a much larger piece of that dead president paper pie to the fighters, the lowest disclosed pay that I can remember seeing for UFC newbies in the past couple of years is 8000 and 8000 uh, That's over four times the amount that the second-place company in the industry is paying out. While I agree that the UFC needs to pay its fighters more, could we possibly agree that Bellator needs to start feeling a little bit more pressure to line the pockets of its athletes with some more of that Viacom money? Please discourse and thank you. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Wayne in North Idaho and lump this in with uh, a number of things that at this point it feels like we give Bellator kind of a pass on. Drug testing being drug, another. Drug testing being another one of the big ones. Uh, and maybe that is because we just don't pay as much attention to Bellator, and maybe it's because we know Bellator is dealing with uh, a smaller share of the overall in industry's resources, both in terms of talent. Uh, and at this point, you got to think money, uh, just because of the uh, the new ownership in the UFC, even though... It's right to say that Bellator is owned by this enormous conglomerate and Viacom. We also don't really know how much money Viacom is willing to spend making Bellator a success, although Scott Coker would have us, have us believe a lot. Uh, I just think like the, the, pop, the populace at large, observers, let's just say, are willing to give Bellator a little bit more leeway in that department than it is the UFC. I think both because the UFC kind of sets the standard for the entire industry uh, and still enjoys a you know a near monopoly over the sport uh and bellator is able to maybe enjoy a few perks by being the the second largest mma promoter in america rather than the first you know the largest mma promoter in america although if you ask them if they wanted to switch places they probably would still do that do you think some of it is also that uh, whether we consciously acknowledge it or not, we just don't want to see Bellator go away. We want to see it be able to keep surviving, stick around. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the American mixed martial arts industry is better when there's notable competition, and so it's good to have Bellator around. Uh, I would just think that like that it's just just a lack of scrutiny. Really, it's it's you know the UFC takes up so much attention. Uh, leaves almost no room for a competitor in the marketplace to grab any news or, or make headlines. And that's kind of one of the things that was interesting about this Tito Ortiz, Chael Sonnen uh, fight card is that it went down on a night when there was no UFC this past weekend. And, and you know, when the UFC is, is such a big deal and is hogging so much of the limelight, uh, it's almost like we don't have either the energy or the the, the space in our lives to like heavily invest in what Bellator is paying people, yeah. which is probably wrong. We probably should do more to uh, pay attention to that stuff. Well, and the question always comes back to, and this is the same for, for the UFC as it should be for Bellator is not just what the payout numbers are, what the split is. That's one of the things that, you know, it's hard to know. And that's the really important question when it comes to fighter play, fighter pay is what percentage of uh, your revenue is going out to the fighters. Yeah. A good point. Uh, Last question this week comes to us from Gavin Springett. He writes, with the loss of Eric Winter, who was probably the most interactive UFC executive with the general public on Twitter and was known to hold brainstorming sessions with Fight Pass fans at events, what does the future hold for Fight Pass as the big fights on the platform have been reined in as of late? And has the UFC as a company and brand gone backwards since the takeover and the loss of other notable executives? Uh, 
I was surprised to see Eric Winter. Yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly what his official title was at the UFC. I'm going to say executive, executive vice, vice president, president in charge of, of the fightpass.com. Di- digital content strategy. Yeah, probably digital content was in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, it's probably like nine words and digital content was two of them. Eric Winter, I thought, and I, I said this on social media this past week, seemed like one of the more accessible, one of the more engaged, one of the more likable UFC executives on the whole. And as a guy running the UFC's digital streaming service, which I obviously have not hesitated to criticize over the past couple of years, I thought it seemed like a step in the right direction to have him, uh, you know, drive on the boat for the fightpass.com. And now to see him depart, uh, the at least initial reports said he left of his own free will to go do something else, to, to spend more time with the family, I believe was Eric Winter's tweet on the subject. Uh, I was surprised, and I don't think it implies good things for the, at least the immediate future of where uh, the streaming service is going, although you also got to imagine WMEIMG probably has a guy for that. Yeah, and that's what I wondered too is exactly what happened there is if, if they said – you know what, maybe this would be a good time for you to spend more time with your family um, while one of our guys takes over this uh, aspect of the business. I I don't know. I guess I just want to believe that it is actually the the family thing. Because I, I talked to Eric Winter when doing a story about their kind of attempt to revamp Fight Pass and that strategy that they put in place, which I thought overall was a good strategy. Yeah. He seemed to be doing a good job. Uh, and like you said, really accessible. He felt like somebody who was engaging with MMA fans in kind of the opposite way that Dana White does, um, which is to say, like, actually sort of appreciative uh, and willing to listen to their feedback. And, yeah, to to lose him, I it doesn't seem like that is going to make the fight pass overall experience better uh, with that guy gone. I don't know. Um, but it it does make you wonder if this is the this stuff we're going to start seeing under the new ownership it seems like we've seen a little bit of a trickle of this kind of stuff here and there uh and it's eventually it's going to have to get to a point where it significantly reshapes the overall UFC does it not you mean the new what the new ownership is doing yeah like if you're if you're replacing all these people with your people whether it's you know voluntary or not um, and you're kind of just implementing your own strategy and, and giving these jobs to the people you already had. Something has to change, whether it's better or worse. Yeah, and if the assumptions that I think we're making, if the broad assumptions that we're making about where the product is headed, at least in the in the immediate future, are correct, it doesn't seem like Fight Pass will be getting any more of a significant foothold in the in you know the amount of the UFC's product that it presents. In fact. If one of the initiatives at foot by WME IMG is going to be to cut back on the number of live events that the UFC puts on per year, it would seem only natural that Fight Pass would kind of get the short end of the stick in that regard. I think we've already seen, uh, I would wager, uh, a reduction in the number of live UFC events that are Fight Fight Pass only, right? It seems like when the Fight Pass came out uh, a couple of years ago, there were, there were several you know, stream only events each year. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but at least my perspective has been that those have, have become less over, you know, fewer in numbers uh, during its lifetime. And I think you will, at least in the short term, we'll see even fewer uh, UFC, you know, fight pass only streaming services, which means if they keep it around, which you expect that they would, since the future of the business is probably fightpass.com. It's just not the present. 
time of the of the business so you you know those uh agreements that the ufc has with smaller independent organizations are probably gonna have to carry most of the water for fight pass even though i don't i don't know if that's really uh uh that big of a selling point for most people but yeah to lose eric winter seems like a setback and uh while i continue to hold that the future of the streaming service is probably pretty bright it's probably going to there are probably some some rocky times ahead in the immediate future i think what do you think about Gavin Springett's overall question of has the UFC as a company and brand gone backwards since the takeover and the loss of other notable executives? I, it's too soon to say. I think I think we're still in that period where uh, WMEIMG is kind of slowly restructuring it to meet what they think it ought to be. And one of the things that you saw popping up in that investor deck a lot was the suggestion that the Fertitas had been basically running a family business with the UFC and that like family businesses tend to do, uh, it was a little bit bloated and was not as lean and efficient as it could be. And that was one of the things that they thought they could really maximize their, their money on was, you know, coming in there as real experts and trimming it down and, and making it uh, run a little more efficiently. And so, you just don't know how that is going to affect the final product, though. It has to affect it eventually in some ways, and I don't think we've seen how that's going to look just yet. Yeah, and that kind of those layoffs and cutbacks are common when one big company takes over another big company. I think that it was a little bit hard to wrap your mind around the idea of those layoffs, considering that the UFC had its most financially successful year of all time in 2016, especially if you were one of those people that ended up getting laid off. Uh, I would totally understand if you looked at it and thought, now, wait a second here, like you're laying <laughs> yeah. off people in the, while you're making more money than you've ever made before. Uh, but I think that, WME IMG at the at the helm of the UFC seems promising at least to me that these are reported real professionals in the in the field of of the highest level of entertainment and if anybody is going to know how to grow this brand into the mainstream it should be those people the most interesting question to me and maybe this is kind of what Gavin Springett is getting at as uh an assumed hardcore fan uh is how you know that very rabid and uh very territorial hardcore fan base is going to take that like while if the ufc is transformed even more into this sort of like mainstream sports brand entity uh do, do the people that that liked the thing that the ufc originally was do they stick around and do they find it in their hearts to like accept those changes and accept the new uh brand strategy yeah and we don't know that yet yeah, as we've seen over and over again, mainstream acceptance seems to be one of those things that we want until we actually figure out right. what it looks like. It, it, we haven't <laughs> we haven't really reached a uh, an acceptable point for that yet, I don't think. But that's going to do that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss uh, Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. There's always stuff in there to write about it. And plus, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Ben, the 20-year, 32-fight career of Jacob Christopher Tito Ortiz wrapped up this past weekend at Bellator 170 with a win over Chael Sonnen by first-round submission. Uh, I think we're going to get into the actual fight and how they went down in a few minutes, but I thought we should spend some time talking about the career of Tito Ortiz. And while that's a, a, a complicated subject and probably has more ins and outs, ups and downs than we are capable of discussing uh, during our time slot here, uh, Tito Ortiz at least goes out on a high note, having gone 3-1 and one in Bellator dating back to uh, May of 2014 when he made his uh, debut with the company. What do you think is the right way to remember the figure Tito Ortiz in the MMA industry? And do you think that's different from how he will be remembered? You know, it's tough. I was thinking about this a lot because I wrote, you know, kind of a column today about uh, the legacy of Tito Ortiz, which I think would be really easy to misconstrue. And I, I almost think that we should resist thinking that we have to come up with one answer for it. Because when you've been in the in the game for 20 goddamn years, it would stand to reason that there were, you know, you lived several lives while you were in it. And I think, you know, one of the things that was really striking to me when I kind of just sat back and looked at his record was that, you know, you if you were a relatively new fan, like maybe you've been watching MMA and, and really following it closely for the last three or four years, you would kind of be baffled, I think, by Tito Ortiz and by the his enduring popularity uh, and fame. That Because for like 10 years, he has been on a kind of a rocky run. Yeah. Uh, you know, he had that, that losing streak uh, in the UFC where, you know, basically after he got knocked out by Chuck Liddell at UFC 66, then he didn't win a fight again. Uh, you know, that was in 2006. He didn't win a fight again until 2011 when he knocked, when he, he submitted Ryan Bader. And that was a kind of a shocker. Um, and then he lost next three after that before finally exiting the UFC and signing with Bellator. And he would at, at around this point became kind of just like a favorite punchline for a, a lot of people in the MMA community, just because, you know, he's been known to, to say, uh, ridiculous and just laughable things. Um, but yet, still regard himself super seriously. Um, the the story about the lion is a great example <laughs> yep. of him doing all of those things in one like three minute burst where he's just like, let me tell you, let me try to recreate a Christopher Walken bit. And you're like, I know that you cannot do this. Right. And from the jump, he says, Christian Walken. <laughs> That's the very first thing he says. Uh, but also to, to then like, wait, so your point of the story is that you are the lion? Because just looking at like recent events, that would not seem to be the case. Right. Um, but you know, and so it's easy, I think like to kind of make him the, the butt of a lot of jokes, but then also like, if you go back and just kind of consider what he was to MMA, um, back in his heyday, right? It, you can't lose sight of that. He was one of the first stars and the first, like he became an MMA star when there was no such thing as an MMA star. Yeah. And like, not only was he one of the first real American mixed martial arts stars, he was arguably the most important American mixed martial arts star because in his heyday, I think you would say, you know, starting in the year 2000, I guess, uh, you know, when he goes out and beats Vanderlei Silva at UFC 25. And then I would say all the way up until 2006 when he loses to Chuck Liddell. I would consider the second time he loses to Chuck Liddell. I would consider that Tito Ortiz's heyday. And for a lot of those years, uh, you know, the UFC was in a really rocky place, both financially and in the culture, where it was under fire from politicians. It had been kicked off 
a lot of pay-per-view providers. It had been, you know, couldn't find anyone on cable TV that would put it on the air. And Tito Ortiz was really the only star, unless you wanted to count, you know, somebody like Matt Hughes, who was uh, the, uh, you know, one of the, the company's biggest stars or biggest champions at the time. He and Tito kind of were the guys you could set your watch by, as I like to say, that those two yeah. guys would come out and kick somebody's ass every well, couple of months. And people liked Matt Hughes back then more because they hadn't seen him and gotten right. to know him yet on The Ultimate Fighter. Kind of the same, like, not necessarily because of The Ultimate Fighter, but sort of the same principle as Tito Ortiz. Like, when the media exposure was less and when you judged them more by what they were able to put forth in the cage, like all we knew was that Matt Hughes would come out and beat the shit out of someone. All we knew is that Tito Ortiz would come out and beat the shit out of someone and that Tito Ortiz would do it with a little bit more flash and a little bit more sizzle than we were used to seeing from guys at that time. You put on a t-shirt afterwards yes, that he, he had would. made at the mall. Yeah, he would put on a snarky t-shirt after it. Uh, and then, you know, had the big feud with Dana White and all that stuff, which, which kind of, uh, I think only helped put him over in terms of, the like in the eyes of the of the MMA watching public and i think as we got more exposed to him and his personality over time and some of the kind of self sabotaging personality stuff that he did over the years uh we started to regard him as a little bit more of a comical figure but back in those days uh he was the best thing going and i would say Without Tito Ortiz, the sport might not be here today just because right. of the work he did carrying it through those really kind of dark years. You know, and I, th I, I think that that d deserves mention when we talk about his legacy, especially because, you know, I remember talking once with uh, Greg Savage, uh, for, who was the longtime editor uh, of ShareDog until recently. And, you know, he had been covering the sports way back in the day. And we were all kind of sitting around at a bar once uh, when everybody was in town somewhere for to cover an event, talking about what we thought was the most memorable event that we had ever covered. And he said UFC 40, which was the first Tito Ortiz Ken oh, Shamrock yeah, fight. Yeah, I was there. Uh, and I remember being like, oh, come on, man. And him saying, you know what? No, that one was the first one where it really felt like something. And... You know, and it's still like that one, like at least according to Wikipedia, did like 99,000 pay-per-view buys. Still was pretty small. But I remember ordering that one in college being like that was one where it was like I could actually convince my roommates to pitch in on a UFC pay-per-view and not have to wait until I could get the VHS tape weeks afterwards. It was the only one that I ever recall them like being like, okay, Ken Shamrock, I heard of him. Tito Ortiz, I've heard you talk about him. So like, yeah, we'll, we'll buy this one. Uh, and even there's on the Wikipedia page, and I think this is, was a quote, um, maybe from, uh, Big John McCarthy's, uh, book. Uh, where he talks about UFC 40. Um, and this is interesting. He says, when that show happened, I honestly felt like it was going to make it. Throughout the years, things were happening and everything always looked bleak. It always looked like, this is it. This is going to be the last time. This is going to be the last year. But when I was standing in the octagon at UFC 40, I remember standing there before the Ortiz-Shamrock fight and looking around. The energy of that fight, it was phenomenal. And it was the first time I honestly said, it's going to make it. I think that's actually from him talking about writing his book. But yeah, uh, you know, and that I think... People kind of forget that, especially because those fights, the the series of fights he had with Ken Shamrock, none of them were particularly competitive. It right. just got kind of sad and weird toward the end of it uh, until you wish they would just kind of stop doing it. But uh, those were like some like that first glimpse of like, hey, wait a minute, this is where this thing could go. And I would even say that about like athletically about some of his fights, you know, that style of ground and pound that he pioneered. Um, or not even necessarily pioneered, but like refined. And that I remember watching his fight at UFC 22 with Frank Shamrock, which he lost. And that one being like the first one we realized, wait a minute, something different is happening here now. It's not just the wrestler guy doing wrestling against, you know, a jujitsu guy trying to do jujitsu. It was two guys 
was both doing MMA. Uh, and that was one of the first times I can recall at least seeing that. Uh, and, you know, he was a part of that. And when you look around at all the other guys who are around at the same time, shit, man, none of the rest of them are around now. No, or at least none of the rest of them are, you know, are still fighting now. Uh, I actually jumped the gun when you said UFC 40. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say his first fight against Chuck Liddell. So I was actually not at the Ken Shamrock fight, but I was at UFC 47, which was the, his first fight against Chuck Liddell, which was one of the most memorable sporting events that I've ever been to and was the first time that I was inside the arena at an event where I noticed the electricity in the air around a big fight being different than anything else. Like you can go to a lot of other sporting events and there's a lot of people there and, and it's crowded and exciting. When Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz got in the cage and fought at UFC 47, that was one of the most intense things that I've witnessed and was like a lightning bolt moment for me being like, wow, this is, this is different than anything else. Um, so give Tito credit for that. And I guess we will talk about the actual how the fight actually played out in round two. Uh, do you want to do, are you fucking kidding me right now? And then we'll, we'll get into that. Sure. What's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Chad, do you know how many fights there were at Bellator 170? A million. I'm going to guess 1 million. 18, I believe is the final count. Looked like a million, million and a half. 18 fights. Some of which, uh, like you couldn't find any way to view them. Not on TV, not on like streamed on the website. Reminded me of the old Strike Force days uh, when Scott Coker was in charge there, and they would have prelims that they didn't even film. They would have the cameramen with cameras sitting there at cage side, not filming it, because, hey, you know, why would you want to film your own fights? You never know when a prospect might pop up on one of these prelims, and it'd be somebody you'd want to have footage of, but nope, apparently not going to do it. And then, you know, we show up there. I guess we wanted to make a real day of it at the Forum in Inglewood, California. 18. Whoa, 18 fights. Wow, that's a lot. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? That's too many fights, man. That is too many fights. Especially when you got to throw a lot of them as post limbs after the main event because you can't even get it all done in time. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, in that same vein, do you want to know what I don't need to see right before the Bellator main event when we're already three hours deep in the actual televised Saturday night broadcast? What's that? I don't need to see Chris Daughtry show up and sing the national anthem. I mean, I suppose if Bellator wants to play the national anthem before the fighting event starts, which is how we typically do it at sporting events in this nation, I guess, man, go for it. But you put Daughtry out there when it's already 10 o'clock in the one true time zone and we've been watching this thing since 7, feels unnecessary to me. It feels like you're taunting me. And then we got to, this is the worst thing. We got to stand there. We got to watch Tito Ortiz and Chael Sonnen stand there in the cage with their hands over their hearts, like trying to look stoic and yet tough and then super patriotic all at the same time. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? You Not- know what this is, though? This is this, a disgusting lack of patriotism on Chad Dundas's part. We're going to get a lot of emails. Oh, I, I imagine. A lot of emails. I imagine we will. Do it before the event, like we do at sporting events. But there's See, 18 like fights. They, you can do it before the event. you got to do it at like 11 o'clock in the morning. That's better. That's better. It'd be like if they came out and sang the national anthem before the Patriots' final drive in the fourth quarter. Like, <laughs> come on, man. Anyway, that's going to go for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, we talked about Tito Ortiz on his way out the door, or what he says is his way out the door in MMA, which, of course, means he'll be unretired in nine months. But now let's flip it around a little bit, talk about this actual fight, and talk about your guy, Chael Patrick Sonnen. Now, he goes out there, you know, he... He did his some of his normal trash talking before this fight, and you know that has to include a shot at Jenna Jameson, uh, even though, you know, Tito pointed out they were never married, and uh, that relationship is now over. But, of course, it's it's low-hanging fruit for a guy who does his trash talk uh, the way Chael Sonnen does. But it all seemed a little bit half-hearted. Like we talked about before this fight, he didn't have anything to sell us here, uh, and the lack of enthusiasm for some of his pre-fight antics Kind of reflected that. Then he goes out there and he gets submitted in the first round. He's got people crying out that it was a fix. What are we supposed to make of what's going on now with Chael Sonnen over there in Bellator? It was a very weird guy. I talked to Chael last week after we did the podcast, but before the event for a feature story that I wrote for, for Bleacher Report. And it was just like you said, and just like we talked about on the show last week, it seemed like his first press tour for Bellator was kind of strange. He did like... Uh, turn it up, I would say, for the uh, pre-fight press conference uh, when those guys both finally got on the on the stage across from each other. But before that, it was a little bit flat, and it felt like the stuff Tito Ortiz was doing, which essentially he only has one gear when it comes to selling fights, wasn't really uh, meshing with the way that Chael was trying to sell the fight. And when you talk to him, when I talked to him, it was weird. He didn't. He seemed like he didn't want to talk about his departure from the UFC. There were a lot of questions that I asked him, where he would only say a couple of sentences and then just stop, and like the you know the the silence would kind of stretch on, and you could tell like oh, okay he doesn't want to talk about that, even though I asked him a few questions about it. But then I would ask him a question where you could tell he had something prepared for it, and the old chael it was like lighting a firecracker. He would come out with his you know paragraph long. uh let me so, tell you something, Chad. Yeah, does. Exa- yeah, exactly. And it was like, okay, well, he's still doing the chael thing every now and then, but by turns, but in flashes, it, it kind of seems like he's going through the motions here. So then to see him go out on Saturday night and actually go seemingly go through the motions in the fight uh, was kind of startling, even though I don't think it was a fix. I don't think that there's any reason to believe it was a fix. I don't think there's any real evidence that it was a fix. Uh, it makes you wonder exactly what Bellator bought here. With Chael Sonnen, because as we said earlier in the show, it seems like the company has big plans for him in a number of different capacities, uh, and whether or not he's going to be up for that, I think, is the big question now. Yeah, well, and if we can talk a little bit about the fix accusation. I mean, I, I guess, for one thing, I think MMA fans are way too eager to call stuff a fix, just generally. Um I get how maybe some aspects of this looked weird if you if you didn't know what is or what could be happening in a fight like that. Like, doesn't mean he's going for uh, an anaconda choke, but you can tell that he, he's not happy with the grip. He doesn't think he really has it the way he wants, and so he he bails on it. Um, and people saying, like, Tito Ortiz just, like, repositioning his hand on the mat is him tapping, um, which, by the way, reminded me when I was doing my Tito Ortiz research, I went back and watched his fight, his UFC debut, his second fight that night with Guy Mesger, where a very similar thing happens. And I got to admit, Tito Ortiz got screwed against Guy Mesger. He's kneeing him in the head. Guy Mesger does the same thing where he's reaching out, trying to position. Uh, and they felt like he, Tito's corner freaks out that he taps. But then when he gets Chael Sonnen's back and he's off to the side on that choke, which, and looking at it, I was thinking to myself, he's not going to be able to finish that. But when you watch that, his head changes colors. Yeah, he's 
he's crushing the shit out of his jaw. Which, if well, you, it's not I even mean, just the jaw. Like he's clearly cutting off the, yeah. the blood flow because you know Chael Sonnen, uh, a pale Pacific Northwest dude, just like the two dudes sitting at this table right now. His head is purple by the time he finally taps to that choke. Yeah, and you know you can if you if there's one thing that we can say about Tito Ortiz, that dude is super strong. Like that's that's one of the things he's got going for him. I feel like people also forget that this is how Chael Sonnen loses fights. Yeah, like he loses fights uh, by submission, and he he loses fights in in situations where spectators look at it and think, "Wow, could he have gotten out of that? Could he have have power through that?" Because if you look, if you go back to before this this current kind of down stretch that he's on, which by the way is starting to look super Tito Ortiz esque. Now that he is one in four dating back to 2012. But if you just start with UFC 117 in 2010, when he lost by late triangle armbar to Anderson Silva, obviously in the fight of the year, uh, that Chael had been winning right up till, you know, three minutes and 10 seconds left in the final round. And you scroll back through his career, which started in, you know, really started in earnest in 2002, but his first fight was 1997. Like eight of his like 11 losses to that point are submissions. This is how Chael wins or loses fights. This is the guy he's always been. He's always been the wrestler who at his very best could take down anybody in the sport with a double leg, but then was susceptible to getting tapped out once he was there. So I look at this fight and I see two old guys, older guys, both of them probably past their primes in mixed martial arts. Uh, and I see a guy who was coming off a three-year absence, a guy who was fighting up a weight class, a guy who was fighting for the first time in God knows how long without the gear. Uh, and he, he just, he got beat. He had a poor performance and he got beat. I don't think it was a fix, but I do think it makes you wonder what now for Chael Sonnen. Uh, my personal opinion is they can still put him in the cage with Vanderlei Silva this summer and the lead up will be so crazy insane that we won't care. By the time the fight happens, that you know he lost we'll to Tito that. Ortiz. You know we will. Because we will already have been through months and months of uh, grainy black and white videos recorded in Vanderlei's basement. And I almost guarantee you that Chael will not be as apathetic leading up to the Tito Ortiz fight as he will for the Vanderlei Silva fight. Think he'll kick it up a notch? Those two guys will make beautiful promotional music for each other prior to the bell. <laughs> and then we'll, then all bets are off. But yeah, man, I think you can still throw him out there against those guys. Uh, but Ben, do you think there's buyer's remorse at this point for Bellator and Chael, considering that they were talking about having him fight Fedor, talking about having him fight Rory McDonald? What do you do with this guy, and did you ultimately pay him too much? I think if you're Bellator, what you're paying for at this point, especially with a lot of these older guys that you're going to put on your seniors tour, basically, a lot of the you know the UFC uh, leftovers, you're paying for the attention that they bring. You're not necessarily paying for a first-rate athletic performance. You know, that was true of Tito Ortiz. Uh, I think, you know, it's been true with Rampage Jackson. I, I think it's going to be true with Chael Sonnen. And I think the fact that we are spending two rounds on this podcast talking about Bellator, which we almost never do, right. the fact that, that that was the dominant story in the MMA world coming out of this weekend shows you that that worked. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of that is Tito Ortiz and his retirement fight and all that, but a lot of it, too, is Chael Sonnen. Uh, I mean, it might help if you could get him to work a little harder to, to promote the fight for you, but he's still, just by being there and by tossing out those occasional Chael Sonnen quips, he's doing what you wanted him to do there, and he's bringing the attention that you need him to bring. The question for me for Bellator is always, like, how is that a path forward? Because you need 
to get us to show up for some of these guys and see something else while we're there that's going to keep us because those guys just you can't keep doing that forever you can't just keep like paying big money for old dudes to come in and do old guy stuff to each other like it's fun and everything for a little while but eventually you need some homegrown talent uh and you need to be able to showcase it on the same events so but i I don't think that you necessarily have too much buyer's remorse if you're bellator here because what were you expecting like what kind of athletic performance were you expecting from 39 year old chael sonan and 42-year-old Tito Ortiz. Yeah, fair point. And I think if you're Bellator and you've got Chael, maybe you're just hoping you can get a couple years out of him. He's, he's 39 now. You know, if you can if you can put together a handful of fights, uh, where does that leave you? As you asked, I have no idea. But I think if you're Bellator, you're probably taking a wait-and-see approach to almost everything at this point. Uh, and if you can get a handful of, of popular main event fights out of Chael Sonnen, you've probably... You've probably gotten your money's worth. It'll be interesting to see what the uh, the ratings are on this when they do come out. You know, running unopposed uh, on a Saturday night when there is no UFC, uh, I won't be surprised if this scored a huge number. We'll have to we'll just have to wait and see. Does this though for you help c- cement in your mind a legacy of Chael Sonnen being the guy who can't win the big one? Not that this was a, necessarily a huge fight, but you think about those Anderson Silva fights. Um, you know, you think about those times when he kind of gets close to, to getting to that next level. And, you know, Tito Ortiz used that to get under his skin during the, uh, build up to this fight. Like, hey, you know, I've held championships. I've beat legends. Who have you ever beaten? Like, what have you done? Um, and I'm not sure, you know, a win over Tito Ortiz would have necessarily been like the thing to finally, uh, validate Chel Sonnen's entire career, but it does seem like, this habit of in these big fights, he can get to the big fight. And then when he gets there, it falls apart on him. Yeah. And I think that for Chael goes all the way back to that first stint in the UFC where he'd, you know, or the WEC even. Yeah. Well, he, the, the, uh, he fought in the UFC in 2005, 2006, went one and two, uh, and got cut and then showed up in the WEC and lost that championship fight to Paulo Filo at WEC 31, which I would say that those events kind of like, set the stage or wrote the book on, on what his reputation would go on to be, because you're exactly right. Like, and there's no more, uh, Chael Son, Chael ish performance than that UFC 117 against Anderson Silva, where he sold the hell out of that fight. He was a huge underdog. He shows up, he wins every goddamn second of it for 22 minutes. And then he loses, uh, via triangle armbar. Uh, you know, in the in the final round, that's that's kind of if you need the one uh, microcosm of his entire career, that's the one right there. Uh, and even though this Tito Ortiz fight wasn't for a championship or anything that like that, like we talked about last week, he he retold the story about promising his dad that he would beat Tito Ortiz and become the world champion. So him going out with this really lackluster performance and losing to Tito Ortiz does seem very much in keeping. With uh, what we think or what we thought we thought about him. That said, when he showed up at the press conference, first of all, uh, he did, again, what we expect of him showing up at the press conference and being, you know, the exact opposite of how he usually is uh, before a fight. You know, the, like, humble and, like, I'm just here to compete and, you know, be the best competitor that I can be kind of persona. Um but when he says, like, hey, I had been off for a while. I had a couple deer-in-the-headlight moments out there. I need to get some time in uh, in order to to feel good again. I can buy that. I mean, you are off a long time. And, you know, that, I'm not necessarily going to say, like, that's proof that 
Chael Sonnen's got nothing left. No, me either. I think that that uh, one of the things that makes him fascinating is that propensity to show up after the fight is over and give you uh, a very self-aware and 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 very seemingly sincere self-evaluation. That's one of the things that I've always thought you know makes him so interesting. And and so to see him do that here is no surprise. And I, for one, will be hyped to see him fight Vanderlei Silva if if that's what Bellator does, you know, heading into the summer. But we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, as for right now, though, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to get started with round number three right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am youthful and vibrant. Neither of those things is true. Those are alternative facts. I can tell you that from looking here. Well, I'm living an alternative lifestyle, sir. <laughs> that you are. That you are. Uh, so I guess you bring us a theme. Yes, sir, I do. The theme is raw and unedited. Okay, I mean, I guess that can't possibly be wrong, right? As opposed to the fully edited tweets that normally find their way into this segment. Or the well-cooked tweets. I guess I guess you picked a good one here. You know, I hear skepticism in your voice, but these tweets are especially raw and totally unedited. Well, I guess we'll all have to be our own independent judge of that. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. <clears throat> First of all, a message from our sponsor. Of course. I've been hearing a lot of talk on Twitter lately about something called Space Cowboy Cigarettes. This is just a reminder that Master Tweet Theater is sponsored by Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes, the cigarette that is definitely not for kids. Space Cowboys are the cigarette for stupid babies. Are you a baby or a Chinese person? Then you'll love the uninspected taste of Space Cowboys, the cigarette that is no more than 40% cat hair. Maybe you can hide some in your treehouse or daycare center while adults enjoy the rich, mature taste of authentic cowboy astronauts cowboy astronaut cigarettes except no substitutes baby i i'm not even really sure which product that was an endorsement for cowboy astronaut cigarettes if you say so they're delicious <clears throat> all right tweet the first coming up next grisham mma is the new announcer at ufc Better not fuck my name up, or I'll fuck you up, Grisham. <laughs> so, okay, somebody has decided to welcome new UFC employee Todd Grisham by threatening him. This seems believable. This seems like a uh, standard way to do things these days on the internet. Uh... Do you have any guesses as to who might care that much about the pronunciation of their name? Which I guess makes us wonder, is this somebody who has dealt with their name getting fucked up too often under the old regime. Well, see, that's that's my question. Who has Whose name is difficult to pronounce? I mean, almost everyone in this sport. I'm going to, well, I would say Joanna Yinjechik, but she's just way too good-natured for right. something like this. Uh, I would say Khabib Nurmagomedov, except this does not have the, the tone I would expect right. from a Nurmi tweet or from a tweet written by Nurmi's manager. Do you have any ideas here? Well, see, the problem is I can't even remember any of the people that fought on that last UFC event uh, or who was in the studio. Um, I'm going to say Michael Bisping for no reason. Okay. Um, I'm going to say Jessica I. 
Hmm, both fine guesses, both grounded in a mixture of solid deduction and despair, and both wrong. It is Ben Rothwell. Uh, that sounds like a Ben Rothwell tweet. How are you going to fuck up Ben Rothwell's name, It'd be though? pretty hard. Well, it's a preemptive strike from big, mean Ben Rothwell. <laughs> well, he does. this seems to be the way he's going with his social media persona, and we wish him the best of luck here at the Comet of Head podcast. It's a heel turn. I support it. I support it 100%. I'm a heel myself. Tweet the second. So I flew into Mexico City, and they quote-unquote lost our bags. They delivered them to us this morning and realized that Customs stole all my hats. Angry face. All his or her hats. That means multiple hats were part of the the suitcase there. I'm guessing Joe Benavidez. He's a hat guy. Yeah, he's a hat wearer. Um, This is not right, but I will just say the man with the hat. Chuck Mindenhall. Okay, that's just fun. Both fine guesses, both frequently seen in hats, and both wrong, it is Cub Swanson. Really? Oh, well, he, yeah, he brings his, yeah, he's got that line of hats. Of course. Merchandise. God damn it. Gotta bring them with you to Mexico. Hmm. And customs can't keep their hands off those hats. No, no, they're like me gusta hats. Jesus Christ. That's Spanish. Move on. <clears throat> Tweet the third. A real trickster must Always walks with a gentle waddling. He walks on his tiptoes as if he were walking on sensitive hearts. Winky face. What? Mm-hmm. I shall read it again. As please, written. Please do. A real trickster must always walks with a gentle waddling. He walks on his tiptoes as if he were walking on sensitive hearts. Winky face. Fuck it, Vanderlei Silva. That crossed my mind. I'm going to go uh, Taruto here. Oh, okay. Both fine guesses both bring joy to my heart, and both wrong. It is Henzo Gracie. Oh, Henzo. Waddling through life, a real trickster. So he's he, he's the trickster here? Yes, I believe so. I assume he fancies himself a trickster. I, I think of him more as a lovable rogue. Me too. I, I like a charismatic maniac. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. I stress here that I am reading these tweets exactly as written. Raw and uncensored, in other words. Yes. Girl said she gonna duck my duck from the back. I ain't never had that before. Trying to see that's Dan said a sanda. (laughs) Okay, that's gotta be Jessica I. that's, That's what I would say, too. Jessica I. So you think, but it is Al Iaquinta. Can we just hear it one more time? Oh, yes. Girl said she gonna duck my duck from the back. I ain't never had that before. Trying to see that's Dan said a sanda. <laughs> what time was this tweet sent? Was it like 3 a.m.? It was, I want to, I want to offer a big thanks to Twitter's own Mr. J.M. for taking a screenshot of this one because it disappeared quickly. <laughs> Two minutes, maybe, this tweet was out there. Is this perhaps intended as a direct message? It's, it seems possible. Sent I, from the bathroom of a bar. Let's not give Ally akin to too hard a time. I mean, I want someone to duck my duck from the back. I'm not even sure if I do. I never had that before. Well, I agree there. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. I am leaving out the person this is directed at because it would be too much of a clue. Okay. But it's an at. It's a mention. A menchie, if you will. Just get on with it. <clears throat> Your corny ass fuck, Ollie's punk you badly with your sloppy head down striking and your crooked ass face. I fought contenders. Okay, at the risk of making myself appear a fool, that's Jessica I. 
and I can oh, two Jessica I guesses in one three. one episode. This is my third Jessica. I. This is your third Jessica. You but just this one is right. So you're just gonna guess Jessica I for everything until you're right. Go ahead and oppose me and see what happens to you. Can I hear it one more time? Oh yes. <clears throat> At name redacted, your corny ass fuck. All is punk you badly with your sloppy head down striking and your crooked ass face. I fought contenders. Oh boy, that does sound like Jessica I. Um, am I allowed to say Jessica I as well? Get on the train if you want on. Jessica I. It is, station. it is Jessica I once again mangling the English language like she mangles some of her opponents. Intended for Lauren Murphy, who seemed to have uh, started a, a Twitter feud with Jessica I in the hopes of getting about, which after seeing their back and forth on Twitter, I think we all know everyone in the co-main event podcast universe will gladly hashtag watch. Hashtag would watch. <clears throat> I pronounce the L in would, by the way. Hashtag would Of course watch. you do. Well, I guess that's it for Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting new project about a man with very few friends who meets a charismatic space alien and convinces him to be the best man at his wedding. I see. And what's it called? It's called I Love You, Man Who Fell to Earth. What role do you play? I play Nigel Q37, a galactic overlord. All right. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you. Ben, this Saturday night on Big Fox, it's UFC on Fox 23, uh, coming to you live from where it all started, Denver, Colorado, for the UFC. As we talked about earlier in the show, uh, you got Francis Ngannou and Andre Arlovsky on here, and and you know what shapes up really as a pretty fun fight card. I think just looking at it, uh, hardcore fans will see that Donald Cerrone versus uh, Jorge Masvidal welterweight fight as the co-main event. Uh, and strap on their bibs and start sharpening their knives because they'll be ready to dig into that. The main event, however, is kind of a stumper for me. I think you find out about Juliana Pena versus Valentina Shevchenko in an ostensible women's bantamweight title eliminator, and you think, oh, okay, cool fight. Then you find out it's the main event, main and you event. think, what? What indeed? That's kind of a strange one, right? Yeah, uh, especially if I'm Donald Cerrone, the guy who's been putting in work for a long time, just showing up night after goddamn night for the UFC, uh, putting on awesome performances where I'm pulling off just perfect video game combinations to put people away. Uh, and then you call me up and you tell me, all right, we want you to come down to Denver. Uh, Hometown, baby. There you go. Everybody's going to be out there supporting you on Big Fox. And then you say, all right, it's finally time. I got some main event love. And they say, oh, no, that's for Valentina Shevchenko and Juliana Pena. Yeah, if you're Donald Cerrone, maybe that is a little bit of a of a concerning situation for you. Maybe you chalk it up to that conference call you were on a couple few months back where you might have stepped on some toes. I don't know. Uh, but I think you could look at it as a good sign for the UFC trying to promote some of these women's bantamweight fighters that aren't named Ronda Rousey and, and, you know, haven't necessarily gotten the main event shine that she did when she was the champion. And here you have a situation where, uh, it seems like 
the women's 135 pound division now moves forward without Ronda Rousey uh, in a more or less permanent basis, even though we don't know whether or not she will ultimately return. But as I think I've said on the show before, during the time that she was out between the Holly Holm knockout and the loss to Amanda Nunes, the question was, when is Ronda going to come back? Is she going to come back? And when she does, how will she look? Well, now we know the answer to that question, and now she's gone again. So this time around, it feels a little bit more final. So I think that you could take this as a positive development to see Valentina Shevchenko and Juliana Pena as the main event here. We, You know, we've talked about Juliana Pena as a potential star in this division for a while. Uh, and even though this isn't the, the flashiest matchup out there, I think having this women's 135-pound fight at the main event uh, of what is assumedly one of the UFC's highest-profile fight cards early in the year here, uh, you know, maybe is, is something we can take heart in, that the UFC's not just going to abandon this division. Yeah, do you, I mean, but then it makes you wonder, like, are we basically just in star search mode? Uh, and it also makes you wonder, is Fox over there saying, like, hey, we think that the uh, women's division stuff has done pretty well for us. What else you got? Uh, and then the UFC says Valentina Shevchenko and Juliana Pena, and maybe people at Fox either don't know or don't have enough of the pull to be able to say, yeah, we had something else. And, like, do you have another Paige Van Zandt? Because that's really what we are into. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe the hope here is that uh, one of these two, I would think the UFC might be more interested in Juliana Pena for this, but like could kind of be the the next breakout star with, uh, you know, maybe getting herself out there, self-promoting with a little trash talk, uh, building herself up, go out there, get a good performance under her belt in front of a lot of people on uh, network TV. And who knows, maybe you build some momentum there going on. And it is like overall, like when you look at the entire fight card, it is kind of sneaky good. And you look at that main, uh, that main card, especially, and you just think like, all right, well, like obviously, you know, you, you got Francis Ngannou, Andre Orlovsky, Cerrone and Masvidal, you know, Alex Caceres is always a, a fun guy to watch. Like, I'm going to sit down for this one. So why wouldn't I sit down all the way through to the main event? Yeah, and if you're Juliana Pena, uh, you know, you're 27 years old. You're an up-and-comer in this division. The thing that you just need to be at this point is available, right? You, she had that injury in, in the spring of 2014, missed a lot of time, uh, and then obviously had... Uh, the arrest in over there in Spokane uh, in late 2015, fighting in the streets, which, I mean, if you know anything about Spokane, does not surprise you. Well, uh, and, I mean, if you're, like, it, it's not really going to be, like, a the same kind of a knock on her PR-wise as it would be if it were, like, you know, Chuck Liddell out there fighting in the streets. No, sure, you're Julie point. Pena's out there in the streets of Spokane uh, kicking motherfuckers. You're kind of like, okay, that's... Maybe the UFC could work with that from her from female bantamweight. Maybe so. She's got wins over Jessica I and Kat Zingano then at UFC 200 uh, last year. So, yeah, if she comes out here and can pull off a victory against Valentina Shevchenko, I think that puts her in a good spot maybe to fight Amanda Nunes for the title. Whether or not athletically that turns out to be, you know, too much too soon for her, I guess we'll have to find out. But uh, if you're scrounging around for marketable women's fights to promote in the in the UFC, that's maybe one of the better ones you could do. Can you know, assuming you get Amanda Nunes to stay home at 135 and not try to fight uh, the winner of that Holly Holm uh, Jermaine Durandamy fight at 145. But uh, interesting times, I would say, afoot in uh, 
all of the UFC's women's divisions at this point, and maybe a situation where you're not necessarily in crisis mode, but you kind of want to hunt around for another star, another Paige Van Zandt or Ronda Rousey, as you would say. And uh, again, just as I said about that Bellator fight, being interested in seeing what happens when the ratings come out, I think this UFC on Fox show will be interesting to see, uh, you know, if it can pull a halfway decent number with uh, a main event between two people, probably very few spectators have heard of. And, and you know, what looks like a fun fight card for hardcore fans but without a lot of uh, mainstream crossover but we, on that weekend that off weekend between the last week of the nfl playoffs and the super bowl right yeah yeah Another, what else are you going to do sports a good, fans a good time slot just in the same way bellator uh 170 had a good time slot which one of these things are you most interested in seeing what's the thing that ben folks picks out uh and says that's that's my jam on this fight card, yeah. you mean? I know you're going to say Nate Marquardt versus Smile and Sam Alvey, so I'll spoil that forever. Yeah, I knew that was on there. Uh, you know, as far as just like pure athletic, actual quality of fighting stuff, Donald Cerrone versus Masvidal is going to be a crackerjack. Hard to argue with that one. However, Francis Ngannou is kind of shaping up like he could be one of my guys. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's going to be about a minute and 45 seconds worth of dynamite. Yeah, you can really see how they put together this televised main card, too, right? Where you go featherweight fight with Alex Caceres as your curtain jerker. That's right. Because you know he's just going to go out there, dance around, and act crazy, probably go 15 minutes and win a decision over Jason Knight. Then you follow that up with your heavyweight banger, which is going to go 66 seconds. Or the dreaded 15 minutes. <laughs> right, yeah. And then you got your your high-octane welterweight fight between Donald Cerrone and, and George Masvidal. And then you got your main event, women's bantamweight title eliminator, uh... This this was put together by some damn genius in the <laughs> UFC offices. Just think, oh, I know what we do. I know how we get them. Consider I, me got. Yeah, they did it. Consider me got. Uh, you want to do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Sure. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying my new favorite genre of MMA photo is is really starting to blow up out on the social medias, and that is. I need me more pictures of Elir Latifi riding majestic animals, preferably in exotic locales. I need that stat okay, I've seen, in my life. I've seen the one of him riding a horse on the beach. Yeah, first it was Elir Latifi. Looking like an extra from Conan the Barbarian. Riding a horse, shirtless. Then, I don't know if you saw this one this week, Elir Latifi, again, also shirtless, riding a damn elephant, coming up out of the shallows of some river. What? How would I miss this? I, you apparently... Better question is, how would you see something like this and not immediately alert me to it? You know that this coincides with my interests. I'm pretty sure someone sent it to both of us on Twitter, so you must just not have had your, your ear to the ground. Here. God damn it. Then you got somebody out there also doing the Lord's work, photoshopping a Lear Lativi onto the back of a damn T-Rex. And at this point, I'm saying, if it's alive and on the planet today and a person can ride it, get me a photo of Alir Latifi, the bricklayer, astride that beast. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's what I'm interested in seeing. There's a lot of potential there. A lot of potential. Well, Jed, I'm just saying, you know, we talked about Tito Ortiz. Here are some quotes from him after the fight, talking about how, you know, he was upset with Chael Sonnen and some of his trash talk beforehand. Uh, and Chael Sonnen said he went and talked to Tito afterwards. Tito kind of downplayed that conversation. Um, I didn't say anything after the fight. He came to my dressing room and said, good fight, it was an honor, da-da-da. And I go, you've got to apologize to me in public. So we're going to see if he has enough balls to apologize to me in public. 
Furthermore, Tito Ortiz explains, quote, I'm a kid who has a lot of respect. It's 42-year-old man, Tito Ortiz. I believe in respect. Talking about another person's family is something wrong to do. And for what he did, that's just the wrong thing to do. That's always my three rules of shit talking. You don't talk about a person's <laughs> family. You don't talk about a person's country. And you don't lie about a person. He did all three of those things. And the big man upstairs took care of it. Two prongs to this, I'm just saying stuff. One, I'm just saying, let me know when you get that apology. <laughs> I mean, or what? Like, you guys won't be friends? I'm sure that was just break Shellstone's heart. Uh, just saying stuff, part two, good to see Tito Ortiz is going to end it the way he, he did it his whole career. He's going to go out with a weird quote about how he's a kid who has a lot of respect, about how you don't talk about a person's family country, um, or, and you don't lie about them. Uh, also, the big man upstairs took care of it. So basically, Chilsonen was judged by God. Yes. And found yes. wanting. I believe it. And his punishment it. for this was a submission loss to Tito Ortiz. I'm just saying, how are we just finding out about Tito Ortiz's three golden rules of trash talk now as he walks away? He didn't want to give it up uh, where anybody could just yeah. take advantage of now it. Now that it's over for him, he doesn't mind if people know the secrets. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC on Fox 23, Shevchenko versus Pena. And then we will look ahead to the UFC fight night featuring Dennis Bermudez versus... The return of the Korean zombie, Chan Sung Jung. So that'll be uh, exciting for everyone. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. The other thing about you don't talk about a person's country, they're from the same country. What did he say? What did Chael Sonnen say about the United States of America? I see. Now, the thing that struck me immediately was that if we look back at the career of Tito Ortiz... I would assume we're going to find multiple instances of him breaking his own three golden rules of trash talk, right? He must have said something disparaging about Brazil at some point. Or lied. Never lied. Isn't the point of trash talk?